0: Break the breakthrough. breakthrough. Break the breakthrough. Break the breakthrough. Break the breakthrough. breakthrough. You are now listening to Breakthrough News. (laughs) It's 5 p.m. You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this we're following the news all day so you don't have to giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be and yes we are back here on the punch out 12th of July, 2021, very happy to be back with you, as we always are. Plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about a social explosion in South Africa over the weekend. We're going to be talking about where things stand in Ethiopia and the ongoing conflict there in the Tigray region. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we are going to start with democracy, one trial in the state of Texas. In a blatant attempt to further the assault on voting rights in Texas, the Attorney General there, Ken Paxton, arrested Hervis Rogers last week on charges of voting illegally, allegedly while on parole. The arrest, which was last Wednesday, took place just one day before the state legislature opened a special session where lawmakers will take up a law designed to restrict access to the ballot. And Rogers had gained some brief fame last year when he waited for six hours to vote In the presidential election at his Houston polling precinct, which caught the attention of journalists, including CNN, who then interviewed him. In Texas, the law says it's a felony to vote while on parole, but only if the person, quote, unquote, knowingly does so. So if you didn't know you couldn't vote, you aren't liable for the felony. The charge carries a sentence of up to 20 years. So that's basically what the case will turn on, and it seems almost certain that Rogers did not know that he could not vote, and that's certainly what he is maintaining, and it's pretty hard not to believe him given the circumstances alone. As he told journalists at the time, that's one election day, he was determined to vote because he saw it as his civic duty, and he felt whatever the delays that were in place that he should stay and persevere. It certainly would be strange that someone who felt so strongly they were exercising their legal right to vote would go so far out of their way to not only do so, but appear on international television and talk about it. And there is, of course, another absolutely key fact here. The voter registration system in Texas actually allows you to register if you are on parole and not eligible. So in all honesty, if you're allowed to register to vote, what reason is it to think that you are in fact not eligible to vote? And in fact... Republicans in Texas have blocked multiple attempts to make it possible for election officials to block registration of ineligible people in cases like this. Clearly, this is what they are hoping for, to create confusion and ambiguity around who is and who isn't eligible to vote to make it possible to try to throw out larger numbers of votes in close elections. And given the racism in the criminal legal system, this is primarily going to affect black and Latino voters in a state like Texas who happen to be overwhelmingly concentrated in areas that vote for Democrats. Getting to the heart of the matter, though, this is all political. As we mentioned, the timing seems absolutely intentional. And to go after a black voter from Houston plays right into the right wing fairy tales about voter fraud that constantly claim massive fraud in black and Latino areas, despite there being zero evidence of this in Texas or anywhere else. Add to that that Paxton is in the middle of a tough fight for reelection. Now, Paxton is under investigation for securities fraud. Also, last year, a significant chunk of his own staff resigned because they said he was trading campaign donations for favorable treatment. He's also under investigation by the State Bar Association over his efforts to try to invalidate the 2020 elections. Now, Paxton's troubles have drawn a range of big-name challengers into the race. On the Republican side, George P. Bush, the land commissioner and son of Jeb Bush, looking to switch offices here, has entered the race for attorney general and, in fact, has declared Paxton to be soft on the issue of restricting people's right to vote, including the fact that he said that Paxton should have actually done more to push the totally fraudulent challenge to the 2020 election. Bush is saying that Paxton should have challenged the election before it even took place. Also on the Republican side, Ava Guzman, who resigned from the Texas Supreme Court to run, has joined the fray, very well respected in conservative legal circles, and she's holding out the fact that, well, she's not super corrupt like Paxton, at least not knowingly, and is a better lawyer than Bush. Also, interestingly enough, Lee Merritt, who has gained national recognition representing the families of police brutality victims, has announced he's running seemingly as an independent. So clearly, Paxson is looking to bolster his credentials with the right wing as being the most aggressive in pursuing the non-existent threat of, quote unquote, voter fraud. He also has engaged in venue shopping for this case, taking it out of Harris County, where Houston is, into a more conservative county to try to assure he win- ensure he wins, I should say, so he can wave a conviction around like a trophy in this race. What are Mr. Rogers' chances in court? Well, that's not clear. Crystal Mason, who was convicted of a similar charge relating to the 2016 election, has her case under appeal, making similar arguments. So if that case is resolved before Mr. Rogers' case, it will undoubtedly impact it one way or another. But it seems very clear that this case has nothing to do with voter fraud, but in fact is concerned with the politics of Texas. It also brings another important spotlight on another crucial issue, which is felon disenfranchisement. Roughly 6.1 million people around the country are ineligible to vote because of a felony conviction. Voter disenfranchisement is based on a perverse reading of the 14th Amendment from a case in 1974. Section 2 of the 14th Amendment does allow the abridging of the right to vote for, quote, rebellion or other crimes, end quote. Now, clearly at the time, this was meant to apply to former Confederates whose right to vote was in question due to their unwillingness to recognize the end of slavery and the rights of black men to vote. That the context of that section historically should not be considered is totally absurd because it also refers to citizens only as males and, in fact, was used in the 1870s to deny a case where women were seeking the right to vote. Now, of course, no court would rule, as the court did in the 1870s, that the right of women citizens to vote is not, in fact, enshrined in the Constitution now. No one would say that women don't have the right to vote, widely believed. Further, in the 1980s, the court ruled specifically that Section 2 does not permit purposeful racial discrimination, which violates the Equal Protection Clause. That's basically Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. While there are ways certainly to argue racial disparities in the criminal legal system are not purposeful, in reality, give me a break. Felon disenfranchisement is clearly designed to reduce black voting and thus totally against the spirit of the 14th Amendment, which was designed to encourage it. Either way. The case of Hervis Rogers shows that even in 2021, the issue of the right to vote is still not entirely settled in the United States. Well, one thing you probably have not heard is that the Secretary General of the United Nations has welcomed Ethiopia's pledge to facilitate the movement of humanitarian assistance into the Tigray region. Interesting, isn't it, how when the UN was critiquing the Ethiopian government, It's top news around the world, but when it's saying something positive, or at least potentially positive, the issue has conveniently slipped out of the headlines, which fits something of a pattern. Just like how you've heard plenty of various allegations about atrocities committed by the Ethiopian and Eritrean militaries, but nothing about the Maikadra massacre where Tigrayan forces killed, in the words of Amnesty, a quote, very large number of civilians with machetes and knives. Or the fact that, in the controversy over who is destroying bridges that could carry humanitarian aid, even Human Rights Watch has acknowledged that the so-called Tigran defense forces are likely behind some of the bridge detonations. So, suffice it to say, the information coming out of Ethiopia has been markedly one-sided and, quite frankly, misleading. But as the war itself has entered a bit of a lull, it's worth looking at where we are now. All sides, it seems, have taken a step back. Ethiopia and Eritrea have withdrawn their forces mainly from the Tigray region, and Ethiopia previously declared a unilateral ceasefire. At first, the Tigrayan defense forces said they were going to expand the war rather than honor the ceasefire, but they seem to have backed away from that as it would obviously A, undermine their entire narrative of the war, and B, it would certainly make it impossible to bring in any humanitarian aid, which would tarnish their carefully crafted PR image in the West." Over the weekend, the Tigrayans also released a set of negotiating positions by which they would be willing to engage in a ceasefire, and it's worth noting here they began the hostilities in the first place. Their main condition, however, is a total non-starter, but important contextually, and that is they are demanding the Ethiopian government recognize them as the leaders of the Tigray region. Why is this important? Well, remember how the conflict started. It started... Because the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front rejected the postponing of Ethiopian elections due to COVID-19 and went ahead and held a regional election, that, shocker, they won with 98% of the votes. The election was boycotted by some Tigrayan parties, and even the New York Times, by the way, noted that prior to the war, Tigrayans were not 100% behind the TPLF, as that regional vote would suggest. Now consider the context further. The TPLF was from 1991 to 2018, the rulers of the country. Their rule was well known as brutal and ethnically chauvinist. They had a long record of torture, massacres, the use of rape as a weapon, the use of food as a weapon, and markedly unfree elections. And this was the context of the rise of the current president, Abiy Ahmed who emerged from the TPLF, dominated ruling coalition amid these contradictions, coming in and releasing thousands of political prisoners, promoting ethnic solidarity, and addressing human rights issues. Now, this is not to say that life is perfect, or they were doing everything right, or whatever it may be, or that they're doing everything right now. But it's worth noting that even Ethiopia's biggest critics now, like Human Rights Watch, noted that quote-unquote progress was being made on these issues after years of inaction— And not just inaction, the actual perpetration of these crimes by the TPLF. Now, perhaps one sign of that progress is the fact that the government's human rights office, the official government's human rights office, headed by a former political prisoner who worked for Amnesty International, has, in fact already critiqued the government for a massacre during this war. And last May also released a fairly hard-hitting report on government torture in Oromia. It's the home region of Abiy Ahmed in a conflict that's been happening there with rebels. And I bet that's probably something else you haven't heard about, that the government has a human rights office that is, in fact, contradicting the government itself on at least some of their claims around torture, around massacres, and so on and so forth. So when you put it all together, the picture looks a bit different. The TPLF, it seems, is determined to reverse its marginalization in the political scene by whatever means, including launching a war, and now they hope to use their military positioning to make sure they can rule their home region, which they may not have been able to do via electoral means. And secondly, the TPLF has already been pushing for a more federalist vision designed to give regional governments, like the one they want, more overall power, while Abiy Ahmed has been promoting a more nationally unified vision. And from recent elections, many people clearly support what Abiy Ahmed is doing. Now, it's worth noting that in some places like Oromo State, there appears to be more skepticism in that regard. And clearly, the issue of how exactly to address the long history of domination by one ethnic group in Ethiopia, the Amhara, is not anywhere close to being resolved. Either way, the war now gives the TPLF more leverage on the Federalist question as well. So while there is a lot to everything I said, It's much deeper, and we're going to continue to cover this and continue to talk about this here on Breakthrough News. It seems deeply important to look at the TPLF actions for what they really are, a hardcore power play to make sure that they are not marginalized in the new political dispensation that the collapse of their rule due to their own brutality and corruption and ethnic chauvinism brought about. What happens next? It's not clear. But what we can say is, it is bound to center around the issues that we've outlined for you here today. Major unrest has broken out in South Africa in the provinces of Hautang and KwaZulu-Natal over the weekend into today. Six people so far have been killed, over 200 arrested, and numerous shops and malls have been trashed and their goods taken by the population. In a move that is fairly unprecedented in post-apartheid South Africa, the military has been sent into the streets to back up the already heavily militarized police and private security forces. The overall situation appears to have been set off by anger at the arrest of former President Jacob Zuma, sentenced to 15 months in prison for contempt of court for refusing to participate fully in court proceedings probing corruption in the South African government during his term. And despite the fairly clear evidence of corruption during the Zuma era, Zuma, who's a hero of the liberation struggle, is seen by many to have been wronged by this decision and his prosecution being politically motivated by those who disagree with the, quote, radical economic transformation, end quote, agenda that underpinned Zuma's rhetorical presentation of what his goals were in office and what he thought they should be for the ruling ANC. It's the African National Congress. While quite a bit of that rhetoric rings hollow given the lack of real transformation or empowerment during Zuma's term, the fact remains that there is an ideological element to the debate over Zuma and the direction of the ANC that seems to have played at least some role in poor and working-class South Africans taking to the streets. It seems very likely that a major reason why these events escalated so quickly is rooted more generally in the poverty that besets the country. Essentially, half the country lives in poverty. When it comes to inequality of opportunity, which means access to quality health care, education, and infrastructure, South Africa is actually considered the most unequal country in the world. It also has one of the world's highest youth unemployment rates, 63%. You combine that with the fact that organizations like the Shack Dwellers Movement are aggressively attacked and criminalized for seeking solutions to these problems, it isn't terribly surprising that people are seizing the chance to access some of the things that have been denied to them. Overall, the situation in South Africa speaks to the social crisis that has reigned for decades because of the neoliberal economic agenda pursued by the ruling ANC in alliance with Monopoly Capital since majority rule came into being in 1994. While black South Africans have gained political power, the economic route taken means that the inequalities of apartheid were allowed to continue and worsen in the social and economic spheres. While taking on corruption is important, critically important, There can't be real change in South Africa until the inequalities caused by capitalism are addressed. That's the Punch-Out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And, of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And, of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom.